0: Welcome. Welcome, my friends, to the Beggars and Brawlers podcast. This is episode 48, recorded Friday, the 10th of June, 2022. Uh, Once again, from a busy airport in Denver, Colorado. And this week, I have another preview for you of our upcoming Tide Collar novella, Thief of Smoke and Sorrow, plus a little bit on what I discovered writing this thing. So I should warn y'all that there are spoilers in this chapter for chapter one. (laughs) So if you haven't listened to the podcast before this, listen to that one first. Otherwise, uh, even if you haven't read the main series, this will not spoil anything for you. It will just deepen it. So you should be pretty safe as long as you listen to chapter one. If you haven't and you like reading things out of order, I mean, art's in the eye of the beholder, right? So do what you need to. Uh, With that, here is... Chapter 2 of Thief of Smoke and Sorrow 2. We change hideouts before the sun is up, my mind churning all the while on what I'm going to do. Not attack them head-on, obviously. I'm one person against hundreds, and they have my blood. Most of them could stop me without lifting a finger. More importantly, I don't know who in those hundreds did this. It could have been a guild decision, part of their ongoing war against the monks, or just one person using me for her own ends. Scabs, it could have been novices using me for possession practice, though I doubt it. I leave Awena at the hideout with food, water, and empty reassurances. She's probably safer with me gone. Whatever this is, I don't think it's about her. They could blood push her anytime they wanted to like they could me. So why start now, after three years of nothing? I push through the bustling morning streets, trying to feel angry instead of scared. I'm wearing the traditional dress and slacks of an uptown maid, with a close-cropped wig on my head, my breasts unbound for once. Just one more cleaning lady in a district full of them. I steal breakfast without really thinking about it, samosas hot from a vendor's grill, A wrap of salted cucumber, (sniffs) samosas hot from a vendor's grill, a wrap of salted cucumber, and two pink bananas from a cart stuck in a pothole. This is nothing the witches taught me. This I learned myself before I got to the farm. It's how I can afford to send girls like Awena there now, until they learn to support themselves. I duck under a flapping red awning, startling a pair of geckos clinging to the alley wall as I climb toward Old Saray. I hoped to never use what the witches taught me again, to never need the knowledge of powders and poisons and the quick uses of blood magic to subdue and confuse, to never sneak my way into the mansions of the city's elite and the enclaves of the theocrats, to only steal things. Except they can make me do whatever they want. Maybe last night was just them proving a point, just sticking a finger in my eye, like, don't steal too many of our novices. I clench my fists. I hate that they would, but it's better than making me steal blood. My fingers twitch for a clove, but maids don't smoke, not in public anyway, in a district like this. Instead, I square my shoulders and say my mantra, my heart is beating, my lungs are working, my mind is here and now. I probably shouldn't go back to the scene, but it's the only way to find out what they made me do. And from there, hopefully I can figure out who made me do it. I come out of the alley into the broad, quiet streets of Old Surrey. The walled mansions here belonged to the monks and theocrats of the temple until the revolution. Now it's all rich merchants and guild heads. I don't come here much. It's too well-guarded to pull off thefts without using my bloodseeker training. Still... I think I can find the house. A witch stands by a public fountain, lined face watching the crowd. Y'daimla, a seventh circle mediator. My heart seizes, and I skirt around the far side of the plaza, though she has no reason to notice me. I hate coming up here. I focus on what I remember from last night. Three-story mansion, oiled teak shutters, pillared front stairway. I find it on the far side of the plaza. If I wasn't sure, the pair of monk overseers standing at the front confirm it's the house. I suppress a shudder at their passionless gazes. I've never personally had anything against the monks, but I did drown one of them in a fountain two years ago, technically. If they had any idea, these two would end me before my fingers could even find the right pouch. I've seen how overseers fight. Fortunately, a good disguise protects better than armor. I duck past unnoticed. Just one more body in a class of people generally beneath their notice. Another urchin girl born to serve the rich, unless the witches offer her a way out. It seemed like such a good idea at the time. Now, I wish I'd stayed where I was. The inside of the house is quiet. Ceramic tile cooled through my slippers. A fountain splashing somewhere in the distance. I find the servant's door immediately, painted to match the wall around it. I duck inside and grab a broom, the last piece of my costume, then step out with my stomach churning. Like it or not, my training kicks in, watching for exits, planning for danger like the witch controlling me would have last night. My stomach lurches. I turn each corner expecting to see a spray of blood. Instead, I just find the disgusting excesses of Saray's upper class. Room after unused room of statues and plush beds and floral displays. Three women cluster in one of the sitting rooms, talking in low voices, but their glares drive me out before I can hear anything useful. I take a deep breath and sweep my way to the next room, still expecting to find powdered heron's bane on the carpet or someone pale-faced from loss of blood. Instead, I spot a broken window hinge in an otherwise unused guest bedroom. Nothing to remark on in most of Saray, but here, in a mansion dripping with money? Especially in an unused room? A closer look confirms it. Scrape marks on the sill. Right where my left hand would have gripped. Where my abrasions are. I cluck my tongue. Sloppy work. I'd never have left a trail like this if I was sneaking in under my own power. Even as I think it, my training chews on what this means. Easier to move up a building from the inside, down from the outside. If they climbed me to the second story, it was to get something here or higher. Likely higher. I step back into the hall, scanning entrances, possible guard closets, angles of attack. If they brought me here wanting to go up, yes, servant stairs at the end of the hall. I follow it up and come out into a thick-rugged hallway. The ochre fibers go in all directions toward the middle of the rug, but here on the edge I find a single set of footprints disturbing the weave. Footprints my size. I whisper my mantra against the sickness climbing my throat. Third floors are for sleeping chambers, because they catch the most breeze and house the most precious objects. The witches are already rich, so I doubt they sent me here for money. I know what I'll find now, and I have to find it even if the thought makes me want a wretch. I have to know. I follow the footprints, all thought of being a maid forgotten. They lead to a strange room, not a bedroom, and I see no blood or signs of a struggle. Instead, it's like a library, if you could make a library from ten books. Each one sits on its own silk-draped pedestal with ribbons marking reading at various places. One pedestal stands empty, its silk drape pooled on the floor. I suck in a breath. Did they blood push me here just to steal a book? Looks like it. I sag against the door, relief washing through me like a summer squall. I didn't kill anyone. I didn't steal anyone's blood. I didn't tie someone to the kind of bondage I live with. Even as I relax, another part of me demands answers. They possessed me, after all this time, for this? What was so important about a book? And why use me? I can't see the book to find out, but I can look at the other ones here. One lies open on a pedestal. It's covered in diagrams and flowing script, but the letters are not Ujayan, not any script I've seen in Suray's ports and every nation in the world passes through our waters at some point. I frown and lean in closer. What are you doing here? A voice barks. I jump. Good thing maids are supposed to jump like that. I bite back a curse. I completely forgot where I was. I'm getting rusty. I, uh, I stammer. I thought these would need cleaning, my lord. Idiot! He thunders, and something slams into my ear. I let myself fall. I could easily have dodged his strike, or better yet, thrown heronsbane or paw at him to slow him down, knocked him out, and taken his blood, maybe for good measure. But I'm not a blood seeker anymore. I never was one officially, and trying any of that here would just draw attention. I don't need attention. I need information. I hit the floor boneless, even whimpering a little bit, babbling apologies like I used to as a novice, as I do. I take in every detail I can the quality of the stands the barred window the worn places on the teak floor pages of handwritten script fell with me notes in ujain and i tuck one of these into my sleeve as i make a sniveling cringing exit the man shouts something after me about losing more books but i'm already sure this is what they sent me after a book what in scabs do the witches want with a book Alright, so I hope you enjoyed that. Things are getting more intense. Um, I mentioned in the beginning that I was going to tell you some things that I discovered in writing this. I'm a planner, so I usually don't discover that much in the course of writing a thing. But like I said in the last episode, part of the reason that I wanted to write Gaxna and wanted to be in Saray is that I wanted to get deeper into this setting. And one of the things I realized is that when you write in first person, I wrote uh, my last big series, Empire of Resonance in third person. When you write in first person and you just have that one person's perspective on the world, um, whether you call them an unreliable narrator or not, they're gonna end up like giving you perspective on the world that's skewed by their perception and their background, et cetera. And I wasn't consciously doing this, but I realized in going back and writing from Gaxner's perspective, that we had only gotten a partial view of Sarai. So it was really cool to go back into it with this because I had some things that I wanted to add to it that I had thought beforehand. So in the middle of writing Rebel of Riddle and Woe, I was thinking through what the Theracan powers are and how they can use blood and the different like ways that they can manipulate people doing that. And I realized that they need... These people who go and steal blood because once they have blood, then they have all kinds of power over people. And without killing them, they have like even more power to coerce them. So I came up with this concept of a blood seeker. And as soon as I did, it was like, oh, obviously that's what Gaxna was training for. (laughs) So three books in, I like realized what her history had been, which is really fun to have those moments happen. But there are other things about Saray that in writing this novella, because I was writing it from Gaxner's perspective and she was not raised in a temple. She was basically raised on the streets, or she was raised in one of the slums. She just has a fully different perspective on what Saray looks like. So it was really cool in this you know, in this chapter you heard her talking about poverty and her choice to get out and like the class war, or like the fact that um, she calls the contest between the temples and the witches uh, a, war. I don't think Alethea ever uses that term, but you know, from someone in her position. Uh, or maybe because she was trained with the Theracans. She sees it as a war. Because she grew up in that hard situation, she has all this sympathy for these novices in the Theracans' guild who find themselves kind of trapped the way that she did, and she wants to help them escape. Alethea doesn't have any of that, and we didn't see any of that in it because she has this completely different perspective. She didn't grow up in the city, and so she sees everything differently and kind of skewed by the male monk's perspective because that's what she knew. So it was really cool to to write it and kind of discover these things like to see saray through gaxna's eyes instead of just through alethea's eyes and it comes back to that notion that writing just in first person point of view you really really only get that person's perspective whereas in a lot of epic fantasy it's third person and you have like two or three characters that are in a place at the same time and not only can you get their perceptions of each other to kind of balance out who the character is who the characters are you also get their perceptions of the world you know like the one fills in the blanks of the other uh and so this is the first chance that i've had to do that in the tide color chronicles it was really cool to see what came out that was completely unplanned i just like surprised myself or gaxon to surprise me by showing me a different array so hopefully if you've read the main series you are noticing that, too, and think that it's cool. It was definitely cool for me. If you haven't read the main series, then Alethea is going to give you a different perspective on Surrey when you read book one. So um, that's been pretty cool uh, to discover new things about a place that I created from scratch and that I've had in my head for years and that I've already written a full book in. Yeah, it's just cool to find new things and to surprise myself. I am more and more sliding down the spectrum towards being a discovery writer from having been a hardcore planner. And uh, these little moments make that feel worth it, for sure. Um, and oil fish. There's lots of oil fish <laughs> in this book. Not a thing I knew about in Saray. Uh but it makes sense economically. Anyways, I don't need to get that geeky on you. I hope you enjoyed this preview. Um, I will have another one for you in a couple weeks. I think we'll probably do two more. So, until then, thanks for listening. If you want this audiobook and you're listening after like late June of 2022, it's probably available. You can email me if you're already subscribed or if you're not subscribed to the email updates about the podcast. There is a link to do that in the show notes. I send an email like once every few months, just kind of gathering up what we've done recently on the podcast in case you're not getting notifications from your app or whatever. Um, just a way to know that people are invested. And um, want to hear the stuff because otherwise, I don't know who listens to it, so I can't really hook you up with the cool extras. So, with that, I hope as usual that this podcast finds you well and in the company of good books. Until next time, read on. For more information on Levi Jacobs and his books, including the award winning Tide Collar Chronicles, please visit www.levijacobs.com or for a free audiobook only available to podcast listeners, go to www.levijacobs.com slash free. Thanks for listening, and read on.